This episode is brought to you by Candid, who we will be chatting with all of you about later uh, in this episode. But if you are abroad, you know about Candid's clear aligners, the most comfortable, removable, and affordable way to get teeth straightened. I mean, what I would have given to have had Candid around instead of the two high school rounds of metal braces I had before. Oh Ouch. <laughs> but my teeth, they've been a moving and a shifting lately. So it looks like this is perfect timing. And since Candid is now an option, I'm excited to do it. Do it with Jess. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, all our listeners can save $75 on Candid's starter kit. Go to candidco.com slash chatty and use code chatty. That's candidco.com slash chatty, code chatty. Take advantage of this limited time offer and you'll save $75 on your starter kit. Just visit candidco.com slash chatty, code chatty. Welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Well, hello there, Broads. Hello, Broads. How are you all doing today? We are coming at kind of like a three, a part three, I would say. Totally. This is definitely... Tagging past on two to episodes, yeah. Past, yeah, which we changed to conversations about race and allyship due to a conversation that we had with a specific broad um, who contacted us, and this broad spent a lot of time and love and energy putting together an email to kind of explain and break down. Some of the mistakes we had made in the past two episodes. Yeah, so a little background info if you're just tuning in for this episode. The past two episodes, we released like conversations surrounding race. The first one we kind of talked about, I mean, I guess we covered a little bit more of like personal experience and sort of like a general conversation Mm -hmm. about race. And then um, we continued on that conversation talking a little bit about like allyship and um, getting a little bit more specific into like institution, mm-hmm. institutional racism mm-hmm. on last week's episode. So, and we received some feedback on both those episodes. But yeah, basically what you're saying is we got some really concise feedback mm-hmm. from this individual that we both thought was really constructive and really helpful. And we thought it might be helpful for everyone, actually, if... um. One, we had a little bit of accountability for ourselves, but I think that um, making sort of this dialogue public, discussing how things could have been done better, I think that can be really productive for people um, to just, yeah, to kind of break down some things. And um, yeah, I think, I I don't know, I, I can't say anything else other than I think that it will be helpful. Yes. And we are so grateful for all the, all the panelists that we had had, all the broad squad members who had volunteered before were absolutely amazing. Um, and this person is also a broad squad member. And I'm so excited to introduce all of you to Michaela Bartholomew. Hello. <laughs> hey, y'all. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. You. It's so nice to see. I love it's so fun when you're like emailing and talking via um 
uh, social media and then actually seeing someone face to face. Unfortunately, it's over Zoom and not in real life. But I know. Yeah. But it's still fun because, first of all, I'm out here like, oh, shit, I'm talking to the chatty broad. And the other side of me is like, yo, I'm on a podcast. And then the other side of me is like, wow, I get to see human beings that aren't, you know, the five people I'm allowed to talk to in quarantine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of that, Will, before we get into everything, Will you give the broads and ourselves just a download of who you are, what you're currently doing? Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I should be better at this, but my name is Michaela. Um, It's I always joke and say it's pronounced my Kayla, not your Kayla. Because there are a million like Michaela's in the world, but. I ain't one of them. Um, so my name is Michaela and I am an actor. That is what it says on my tax, my tax bills. And um, let's see, I do a lot of theater. I've been kind of a part of the Broadway off Broadway community for the last three or four years since I graduated college, thought I was going to be a doctor, really thought I was going to be an obstetrician gynecologist. So wow. And then um, acting. Yeah. Well, I have a degree in theater, pre-nursing, and gender sexuality and women's studies. A that's what I got my broad. BFA in. <laughs> so Just a busybody who needed extra Seriously. credits in college. <laughs> um, so obviously acting is what I started getting hired to do professionally, but I've worked in the, the healthcare system, specifically in a psychiatric behavioral health clinic uh, mm-hmm. with patients. Um, but I've done everything. I also worked at Hooters for five years, you know, very well-rounded. <laughs> so well-rounded. Damn. Um, yeah. And so I don't do that obviously anymore because I predominantly have shifted completely over to acting and advocacy and activism, uh, which I found once I got to college and realized, wow, not only was I incredibly sheltered mm. growing up, I'm a Navy brat um, and I grew up in uh, Virginia. Okay. I'm from San Diego, but I grew up in Virginia. And um, I was so sheltered that when I got to college, I was like, oh, I'm black. Oh. Wow. You know, most of my childhood, it was like, oh, she's the, the one black friend or she's the token or, you know, she's the, the white girl that is black mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of the, the black kids. Mm-hmm. So never really had to think about, um, though I was raised in an incredibly like knowledgeable household that tried to prepare me as best as possible. They wanted to protect me at the same time. So activism kind of came along when Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin, um, were killed. And then again with Philando Castile. Um, I obviously, like I said, I'm from Virginia. So I grew up in the heart of the Confederacy and went to school like in Richmond, Virginia, the mm-hmm. capital of the Confederacy. My house for five years was down uh, the street from like the Confederate like central hub, which is next to a Planned Parenthood conveniently. Mm. It's not cute. Um, and now I'm filming a movie, which I still don't know the rules about that kind of stuff. I technically was on an NDA, but this <laughs> pandemic has been wild. <laughs> Um, so I'm filming a movie with Will Smith. I play one of his daughters in a new Warner Brothers film that's coming out next <laughs> year. <laughs> I started following Michaela on um on Instagram and the other day all of a sudden she was posting and she was like, I'm like, wait, is this like are you put this is Will Smith? <laughs> I was like, oh jeez. That's so sick. <laughs> a famous broad yeah, in the house. Like- 
<laughs> Yesterday, I posted a video where I think Jason Derulo had came on set to wish one of my, the girls who play my little sisters, um, to wish one of them a happy birthday. And it's been so crazy with COVID. So like he had to get tested like three times before coming in. We all, we weren't working that day. So we had to get tested as well. Um, But he was guessing all of our ages and got it wrong. Bro said I was 17 and I was like, girl, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If someone could go ahead, call HBO, go ahead, call (laughs) Euphoria, let them know. Um, I will be 17 for the next five years. Um, but I posted that video on Instagram yesterday and everyone was like, what? Why are you with Will Smith? What? With Jason Derulo? What's going on? Like, oh, it's my job, I guess. Uh, sorry wow, about that's me. so cool. So awesome. Wait, how old are you actually? Uh, I'm 25. So I'll be 26 in three weeks, two weeks, Ooh, four almost. weeks. Mm, December 15th. Mm-hmm. Ooh, almost happy A birthday. Sagittarius broad. A Sagittarius. No I'm wonder crazy. you are well-rounded. Exploring the earth. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's like a blessing, I think, because um, I was about to walk away from acting this year. Mm. I was, like I said, working in psychiatric health and um, specifically was working with patients dealing with schizophrenia um, mm. and Black people that are disproportionately affected by mental health as well as... Um, Poverty is what I, those were most of my patients. And I was like, this might be the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I kid you not, I was doing that and teaching for the Broadway Advocacy Coalition at Columbia Law School, which is hilarious. I ain't got no law degree. Holy um, shit. <laughs> but I was doing that and I had gotten a show off Broadway. And on Broadway, you know, it's the same as Broadway, but the paycheck is different. <laughs> um, and I got a call from my agent and he was like, yo, remember that self-tape you sent in like six months ago for that Will Smith project? I was like, yeah. And they're like, can you be in L.A. on Tuesday for a callback? I was like, girl, what? Who's paying for the flight? And he was like, well, you, you would have to pay for the flight. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna find the money, I guess. And I called my dad and I was like, hey, they want to see me out in L.A., so... And then I got wow. the job, like, wow. two weeks later. That's so yeah. cool. Congrats. <laughs> Thanks. I'm very, like, rest. so, so grateful and humbled. It has been, I mean, for all of us, this year has been weird and hard mm-hmm. and probably one of the most god-awful years we've seen in our lifetimes. Well, I can't really speak for everybody, but for me, it's been a rough one. Um, and Maybe I for our generation. From, Yeah, our generation. And I went from like last year, things were just shifting and like transitioning in such radical ways. I like went from getting drugged at this really big Broadway Mm. event to like having a fallout with some really awful people I was living with. So Mm. I was nearly, I wasn't homeless, but I had to find a new place to stay because I was staying with devil reincarnates. Um, oh, I can to, relate. <laughs> yeah, <kidding>. like we've. All, <laughs> You're like, <laughs> um, I wish, I wish I had um, someone like uh, Ruth to be my roommate. <laughs> but so, and then I like fell in love with mm. this dude that I had known for years, and now we're together. And then I moved, and then I had to move again because my house was infested with rats, and me and my roommate were like, "Girl, that's not what we paying this oh, New York rent for." Oh, no. <laughs> 
Um, so we had to sue our landlords. I lost a baby. Like all of those things oh, happened like at the end of last year. And then 2020 said, hey, girl, what's good? Coronavirus. Oh. Let's say like, what's that? Um, and so with that in mind, everything had been shifting and, and transitioning personally. And then yeah. on a global scale, it kind of happened not only to my family, but to the world mm-hmm. and just everything kind of shifted and changed. So this experience being able to say right now I am employed, I'm an employed artist that's getting mm-hmm. paid to do yeah. the work that I do. Um, and also being able to work as an advocate and mm-hmm. an activist, um, not just like a, oh, we're going to post some stuff on Instagram, but organizing rallies and marches and helping launch nonprofits. I don't have experience doing that, you mm-hmm. know, or how did you, you get- know, my mindset. <laughs> Go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, how did you get involved in this specific type of advocacy and act- activism work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I had a loud-ass mouth in college, and um, I didn't like the shows that the they were doing on the main stage. I went to Virginia Commonwealth University, and I didn't like the, the shows they were doing because we when we got there our freshman year in 2013, it was very obvious we were the largest class of color. Mm. And we would later discover we were the largest class of color and the most black students they had accepted all at once in like over a decade. Wow. And, it, you know, 2013 was that whole diversity inclusion year. Let's put brown people on our brochures and our ads so that people will come to our school. And VCU was known for being the most diverse school in the state of Virginia, which is hilarious because it's still a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Mm. Uh, I think we made up like all people of color made up maybe 33% of the school population. And it was the most diverse university. Um, So all of the shows that we were doing was like, Oh, let's put, you know, a black person here. And then let's put another black person here. Let's do Arabian nights. And, (laughs) and let's make all of the, the lead characters black. It's like, Oh, okay. Um, And so my sophomore, junior year, I became the president of the school theater company. And I was like, all right, we're going to have to shift some things because if we're going to be doing better work than they're doing on the main stage, everyone needs to be able to be a part. Mm. Um, And I directed the Vagina Monologues, which is, I think, a trash show. Uh, It's problematic, but it was the first like play play I'd ever had access to. And I was like, this could start a really cool conversation. Yeah. And if we're going to start a dialogue about womanhood or femininity or feminism, any of that um, with a story written by a white woman, we should also direct the profits if we make any to women who are disenfranchised or directly Mm -hmm. impacted by some of the narratives in the story. So use that show as an opportunity to talk about the problems within the show while also raising money for local domestic violence victims. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the first time anything like that had happened at my school. And that kind of just became my thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't realize it was advocacy at the time. Um, But I did it again, my senior year. Um, by directing the world premiere of a play that had originated in the Contemporary American Theater Festival about a civil rights activist who had been murdered. And I went into my like senior thesis presentation and was like, I think the department is racist. 
I don't want to be in any more shows here. That last show I did for y'all, that's the last one I'm doing because they had a time to kill coming up, which that's another story for a different day. Um, And that was the next show. They were like, Michaela, we really want you to audition for it. And I was like, no, I actually would like to devote the last um, half of my senior year to auditioning for grad schools and directing the world premiere of this show that is going to pay all of the students that are acting in it, pay all of the designers, as well as pay an artist to um, build an art installation. And we raised like a couple thousand dollars for the Black Lives Matter initiative. Amazing. Um, And so that's kind of how I got involved with advocacy from a formal standpoint. Other than that, I just went to like protests. Um, Obviously the dude that's in office right now got, elected while I was in school. So Mm -hmm. um, that was fun. Um, The neo-Nazi rallies lived like right down the street from my house and they would show up with rifles and stuff, especially after the incident at uh, Charlottesville. They actually came to us after Heather was killed um, at UVA. They came to our school next and like just kind of park, park and barked. Um, so that's how I got involved with advocacy. And then I found BAC, the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, right after I graduated college. I was broke. I was a host, I think, at this really beautiful, wonderful, famous like French restaurant in New York. And I was like, I need a job and I want to make art. And these like shows that I've been doing have not been paying me enough. Because like I said, off-off-Broadway and off-Broadway don't pay like they should. Mm. And I applied. I submitted my grant that I had built for the last show that I had directed in college. And they were like, come on in. I was like, cool. I get to be a participant in a class at Columbia Law School, the famous Broadway actors. And then I got there and they were like, oh, no, no, no. You're going to be one of our performers. And I was like, oh, wait, what did I apply to? Excuse me. I was like, hey, I got like, I have just a couple regional credits and like some off-Broadway work. I'm not, I I mean, I'm standing next to people from Waitress and people from Hamilton. And I'm just like, no, no. Um, But it seemed to have worked. And I've been working with them ever since. Um, It was the first time I had gotten paid for working in like as an advocate. Mm. Um, And essentially, it's a course at the Columbia Law School called the Theater of Change. Um, It runs in the J term and it brings together directly impacted individuals, people who have been affected by mass incarceration, racism, domestic violence, trafficking, uh, education inequities, uh, different organizers and organizations come in, as well as lawyers and policymakers and students at the law school. And we all get together and figure out how we can use theater as a vehicle to center the stories of the directly impacted. So usually black and brown people in disenfranchised communities center those stories in some sort of piece of art Mm. and take it to policymakers. So like we've crashed Governor Cuomo's birthday party before to talk about education inequity. And we have like an art piece that's like written and helped and developed by people who are suffering in the educational system um, and performed it there. Or we've gone up to the state capitol and done pieces. Um, 
right now I'm teaching a class, uh, co-facilitating a workshop for black and brown women who have been impacted by mass incarceration, be it they are formerly incarcerated, their family members are incarcerated, um, they're in DV uh, situations or foster care, which is another way of saying mass incarceration. Um, and we're teaching them how to write monologues so they can take control of their own narratives because so often our stories are told for us and they're riddled with stereotype, trope, um, and that's exhausting. You know, I get so tired of seeing like what blackness looks like on TV or in theater. And I'd rather hear from the person um, in that circumstance, in that situation, give them the mic for once. And so we've been co-facilitating that class for like 10 weeks. And on Saturday, a bunch of Broadway performers are performing these women, like all of their pieces. That's which is going to be really dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's going to be so cool. They're really excited. Wow. Will that be available to watch? So, no, technically, no. It's not going to be uh, publicized because the sacred, their work is so personal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the sacred nature of like this work, because we've been working a lot with like ritual poetic drama, which can be kind of triggering for them. Um, and also, I think our youngest student is like 15. Mm. Um, so we've invited a target audience um, of, you know, artists that they're really interested in. Like we, we sent a DM to Tyler Perry to be like, hey, these girls want you to come see their show. I know you don't know us, but like if you try, if you're free for like 45 minutes um, and... So we, we've targeted our invites just to protect their privacy. Mm -hmm. um, but afterwards, uh, some of the pieces or some of the clips from the pieces are going to be publicized via the Broadway Advocacy Coalition mm -hmm. um, so that people will be able to check it out and see their right. work so, so that they can like have something grounded saying, I directed a Broadway actor in this thing that I wrote. That's so you know? neat. Yeah, That's so yeah, amazing. yeah. All right, Browds, we have to take a quick pause and let's just get right to it. Straightening your smile can be a pain in the butt, right? Oh, but not so fast. Nowadays, candid clear aligners are the simple way to get the smile you've always wanted. Not only are candid clear aligners comfortable and removable, when they're on, they're practically invisible. And unlike other tooth alignment programs, from start to finish, you'll be monitored by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement and will keep you fully updated during your program, which lasts on average just six months. But you'll start seeing results way before that. We're talking significantly less time and in turn less money than metal braces. Okay, I don't mean to sound ancient with a kids nowadays have it so easy type of phrase, but when it comes to options for straightening your teeth, kids nowadays have it so easy. Traditional braces are painful. They're super restricting and not also, you know, matching with all those outfits. Mm -hmm. At least not my middle school mouth wasn't. Uh, Candid makes getting the smile of your dreams a breeze. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, all our listeners can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. Just go to candidco.com slash chatty and use code chatty. That's candidco.com slash chatty, code chatty. Take advantage of this limited time offer and you're going to save $75 on your starter kit. Just go to candidco.com slash chatty, code chatty. 
So, Brads, if there's one thing I do not need to be convinced of, it's that I should treat myself sometimes. But treating yourself doesn't mean you have to drop a ton of money. Honestly, one of my favorite things to gift myself with is something new from Elf Cosmetics. And no, not Elf as in Christmas. Elf is in eyes, lips, face. The holy grail cosmetic brand that's been loved by so many, including myself, for years. I've been using Elf for many, many years now. Yeah, but you know what? I didn't know that Elf stood for eyes, lips, lips, face until today. (laughs) Um, Elf is one of the only cosmetic companies I know that are 100% vegan and cruelty-free and high quality, but also so affordable. It's not often you find a company that checks all those boxes. So many of their products, like Jess mentioned, have been loved for years, and now they're cult classics, racking up thousands of five-star reviews online. And Right now, their liquid glitter eyeshadow is it for me it's a gel-based formula so you won't leave a trail of glitter every time you apply it and it's opaque it gives you multi-dimensional sparkle and color and i'm not somebody who's normally into that but i am right now girl it is i mean for the holiday seasons yes um it's also the winner of allure's best of beauty award this year which is basically the gold standard of cosmetic awards by the way uh the two elf elf products i've been using every day for a while are first their poreless putty primer it is the number one primer that name in america okay um that it simultaneously moisturizes and gives that poreless look um at the same time it's incredible and then also my second go-to is elf's 16 hour camo concealer it's that full coverage it's made with avocado oil to moisturize and protect it's lightweight and it won't settle into fine lines and creases and it's available in 26 shades right now as an exclusive offer for chatty broads listeners you can get 25% off your elf purchase of $40 or more that's such a good deal the products are so already so affordable and you're gonna get a quarter of your purchase price taken off um go to elfcosmetics.com slash chatty and use promo code chatty and you're gonna get this exclusive offer this is the best deal out there right now people listen up you will not find this offer anywhere else no no no. promo code chatty at elfcosmetics.com slash chatty for 25% off your elf purchase of $40 or more perfect for the holidays I know what I'm getting everybody get something for yourself too it's a good deal (laughs) done and done all right well let's talk about what brought you here today Mm -hmm. because um yeah and maybe hop in i mean you sent quite it was a fantastic email and you put a lot of time and energy into it i have it it with me right here (laughs) i do too it's like right here so if i ever do this yeah yeah. so maybe you could just talk about like what prompted you to write it and then we can jump in and i also want to just say off the bat like um jess you acknowledged earlier we had so many fantastic people on the panel Mm -hmm. And I just want to say this right now, like, please feel free to jump into anything that we said, anything that any of our panelists said or anything that was brought up. And this is not any kind of, you know, shade towards anyone. It's just, I don't know, we want to we want to deconstruct the conversation. So in the nature of that, you know, we might talk about specific things that specific people said, but it's no. Yeah, not not attacking anyone. Anyway, I just wanted to say that and please feel comfortable to jump into anything. I think that's really important that you started with that, right? Because I've been like listening to both parts over and over again over the last few days. Um, And like, first of all, (laughs) this last episode, like this episode that came out on Friday was such fire and flames, flames and fire. Like it was so... (laughs) great i was like wait i wish i knew who was talking right now i was gonna go on youtube and be like wait who's who so i can take quotes (laughs) um but that conversation was so not just like a wonderful open dialogue 
um, and um, great sharing, but it was so like tactile, practical is the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's really important in these conversations that when people are expelling their trauma and like the things that they've gone through as it pertains to racism, um, it's a mighty feat. It's emotionally and physically laborious. It's Mm -hmm. why you hear so often black people online saying, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted. I'm tired because they have to live the experience. Then they have to share the experience again. And then they have to say, this is why the experience blew dick. Mm. That was a really weird uh, word. (laughs) Um, But this is why the experience sucked. And you have to like volunteer that to somebody. So I just want to commend like the Mm. last two panels um, for being willing to make that sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's what a lot of this work is, is, is a huge sacrifice. And I want to honor that. And, and I appreciate them holding space. Two, I haven't really seen a community like this, like a community like Chatty Bras have this conversation. So I want to like commend y'all and honor y'all for, uh, and say thank you for making the space for all of us to just be like, this is what it is for us. Um, and we want to work together to break this shit down, but we can't do it alone. So I want to thank y'all, um, because this is how the work works. Mm. Um, cause yeah. And people talk about it, have been talking about it for months. Like you have to be ready to do the work. What the heck is it? This is what we're doing mm. Um, the last two episodes is what we're doing. Going back and saying, okay, how can we be better informed going forward? Like that's, that's the work. Um, so yeah, I always want to start from a, a place of gratitude and honor those who have come before um, me. And two, I think it helps to um, kind of qualitatively define what anti-racism is, mm-hmm. right? Because we've heard it kind of tossed around a lot. And even I was just like, what? Anti-racism, what's that? <laughs> um, and I've been working in this this field for upwards of six, seven years now. Um, And it's an active process, essentially, of identifying um, what racism is, but not just identifying it. Once it's highlighting, we're like, this is the thing. This is what racism is. Now we have to find a strategy or a plan or um, build a team or a community of people that can actively eliminate it. Mm. So it's not just calling it out but it's calling it into the room, calling it into a space to be like, this is how we're going to break it, break it down, right? Mm-hmm. Be it, I'm going to work with the system and, and try and break it from the inside, or I'm going to like work from outside of the, the system to try and disrupt it. Um, and that involves changing systems, that involves changing the, like our attitudes and behaviors as individuals, encouraging our like friends and family or our communities to change their attitudes and um, their practices and how we engage with one another. Um, We have to start dismantling organizational structures because, hey, we live in America. America was built on white supremacy, whether we like it or not. Um, And that's what anti-racism is. It's identifying racism, but then actively um, engaging in a process that eliminates it by calling out structures, uh, practices, belief systems that we have as individuals and as communities. Uh, And I think that kind of helps to start with a common language uh, for folks. If I sound too academic, please humble me. Oh, my God. (laughs) Here for the lecture. (laughs) Please. (laughs) 
Columbia sorry. professor. I'm, I was going to say the professor Bye. of Columbia. <laughs> professor Michaela, <Yes>. please continue. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've been running away from teaching all my life. So um, <laughs> I, I want to say this by like saying these are just my thoughts. This is what I've learned. Um, I'm still learning. I am not perfect. And I am not an expert. Okay. I am not no Brittany Packnett Cunningham. I'm not on CNN getting paid the big, big bucks to have conversations about race. Um, this is just what I've learned from doing work on the ground. Yeah. And Justin, and- I had a little bit of a conversation before where I was just sort of saying like, you know, and it's kind of silly to think that there's going to be like one stand. Sometimes it's almost like we try to put it into this like small scope of like all black people believe this about like, anti-racism work you know it's like people are gonna have different opinions like it's you're going to have like a different opinion than someone else who does similar work that you do you know it's like it's not I don't I I think that it is I don't know it's easier to have objective truths but I think that the truth is that there isn't ever like one perfect right way to do it and people are gonna have different ways of doing things so anyway just wanted to add that in that no, I think that's really important to identify because like we want this work to be objective so bad, right? That would make it a lot so simpler. <laughs> It'd be like, okay, so we just need to get rid of the constitution, right? And then <laughs> the racism is gone. No, that's not um how it works. We all have there's like socio the social identity theory where it's like we all have a knapsack. Kimberly Crenshaw has this like unpacking the knapsack kind of theory where we have all of these labels or identities that kind of get tacked onto us. I am a black, you know, cis woman identifying Mm -hmm. human being that has a uterus that works. Um, I don't think I'm ugly. So that's a privilege. I'm, I'm able-bodied, all of that kind of stuff. All of those things go on my my knapsack, even my disadvantages. Uh, go in my knapsack. So like I said, I am black, I am woman. So that puts me at the bottom of a social mm. totem pole already. Um, I am mixed. And so my hair presents differently. That inhibits the kind of work I can get in my industry and in my field. I'm dark skinned. So that colorism comes in there. All of a sudden you got another negative tacked on. Um, so understanding that everyone has a different knapsack that they're carrying around automatically means this work has to be subjective um, because we're subjected to different experiences around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that helps in having a conversation because there are people that want to burn the shit down and I'd be wanting to burn the shit down too. I also want to sit down and have a conversation with the people who are oppressing me to be like, this is why this is wrong. I need you to come over here. I, I don't want, I want to see it at your table. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I'm going to bring the homies too, but also can you come over here to our table that we're building up? Are you willing to work with us and your power and your influence and your platform that you have over there? Um, and some other people think that's inefficient and like too much talk. And they're just like, let's just, you know, burn cities to the ground. And I don't fault anyone for that. Um, So in in talking about that, I reached out to you guys because one, the community that you all have built with Chatty Broads, I think is something really special, right? It's, I just started watching The Bachelor like this year. Welcome, Um, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. All right. (laughs) And I I actually take, um, I have a notebook committed to The Bachelor, well, The Bachelorette, where I take actor analysis notes. 
and Ooh. I break down scenes. Ooh. And yes, ma'am. Mm. Um, I have theories. I have thoughts. So that's how I got into y'all because I was like, they know what they're talking about. That <laughs> went through it. Mm. All right. And I'll, I'll say stuff and I'll, I'll be like, yo, like this is obviously producer influence. And then my friends and my we have a Claire Browley uh, instead of Claire Crowley. We said brawl. <laughs> um, we have a group chat. And um, I'll be like, no, this was p- producer curated. And they're like, no, like, this is totally real. Like, it's not fake. <laughs> I'll be like, all right, all right, cool. And then I'll come over here and I'll be like, see, they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> the communities that you guys have built have allowed me to, like, really kind of <laughs> invest in this weird phenomenon that I got involved with as a joke um and it makes me feel like I have friends um <laughs> on on a regular basis especially right now yeah. um living by myself in a in a city that I I don't know um so that's why I reached out to y'all because I was like I feel like they they're willing to listen and even beyond like bachelorette like I listen to every single episode um and I'm like these are human beings that want to make the world nicer <laughs> by being better human beings and learning all they can. And that is my shit. Mm. So um, if I have the opportunity to reach out and help, I'm not going to you know, sit around and just be like a silent community member. That's complicity. If I just mm. let it rock or say, oh, this made me uncomfortable, but like, I'm not going to say anything mm. about it. What that's not in community, like that doesn't work. Mm. That doesn't help anyone grow. That doesn't help anyone. Um, become better and you're the demographic that I believe you guys have is so vast mm. that you know you get people like me in the room uh, with people who might be on the other side of the aisle that I would never speak to mm-hmm. or they would never you know speak to me or um, people that traditionally wouldn't engage with one another and <laughs> the intersection of it all is the bachelorette I guess um, <laughs> and they like we all wouldn't listen if we didn't care right and we wouldn't listen to the episodes outside of the recaps if we weren't interested in learning um, about you know able-bodied privilege or we didn't want to learn about you know what it is to struggle with fertility or you know understand like maternity in a newfound way um like all of that kind of stuff is, is why I felt impelled to reach out to you guys. Cause I was like, eh, I could say this and if it falls on deaf ears, fine. But I think that they would respond. They're the kind of people that would say something. Um, so that's initially what uh, made me want to reach out to you all. And then I sat down to write the email and I was like, okay, but you can't half-ass this, Michaela. You know, you can't identify that something made you uncomfortable and not be willing <laughs> to say exactly mm-hmm. what that thing is so it took some time I was really nervous I kept like censoring myself emailing mm-hmm. um but I was like if you can be as detailed as possible they will feel instead of called out called in and like maybe willing to have a conversation because mm-hmm. um, it isn't to say anything was like wrong trash don't do it again 10 out of 10 would not recommend to a friend um but instead it's like what about this yeah you know, or this, this might help other people feel like super included. Mm-hmm. And um, after I sent the email, I actually went back on one of the posts, I think from the part one episode, and then looked at the comments. And I was like, oh, that's, 
but I understood all of like everyone's perspective. Yeah. Like they just want to be heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just really hard to be in conversation with one another on social media, which is why Super. social media agitates me. Which is why um, we're so grateful that you were willing to come on the podcast because sometimes things, um, it's hard to have these conversations on social media. So being able mm-hmm. to have you face to face and have this conversation mm-hmm. like IRL just, yeah. And of course, thank yeah. you for sending the initial email too, because oh, it was like, yeah. I think your intentions and what actually ended up getting sent was like above and beyond. It was like, as we were reading through it, it was like, this is so incredibly helpful. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say that like, oh, everyone should tone police themselves so that we can actually hear it. But it was just like the, the just everything that you had to say was just so like easy to digest because it you weren't talking about like you really got I really appreciate you getting into everything and I'm excited yeah. to do that right now because it was like yeah it's just it's practical you know it, it's yeah. it's like practically helpful to see exactly where things need to shift exactly um and I will say like I I can do that because like I work as an advocate, right. Mm-hmm. Or a grassroots organizer. Um, so in defining the difference, like I think call out culture and call in culture are both necessary. Mm-hmm. They work for different people and they work for different ways. Um, I want to put the two together. So if I'm going to highlight or call something out, I also want to be willing to have a conversation with you for how we can like rectify things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that all of that aside um i think one of the first points i made in the email was like forums about racism um they're like having the thought that there should never be non-black or brown participants Mm. right yes super hard to like to start on and that's um it's not to say that non-black or brown people have no place in the conversation okay but when we come to like a starting point Uh, What I have found in organizing forums, if we're going to talk about racism, we want to center those who are actually impacted by racism Mm. most immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's just to start the conversation. If there are people willing to have like volunteer Mm -hmm. um, their experience. Um, So that doesn't mean white people aren't welcomed. Uh, It's just let's start if we want to be practical about amplifying people's voices or, you know, redirecting the power of one's platform or privilege or access um, to other white people or other people of privilege, um, we want the people that are going to be, that have been hurt the most by the system we're trying to identify Mm -hmm. to be the ones we're talking to first. Um, And that's not always possible, right? so for me, when I first, when I saw the the breakdown of who was involved in that um, first panel, it wasn't that I was offended. I was just like, I don't know if we need a white voice in the room yet. Right, right. Um, and I think, I believe her name was Monica. Monica? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she was wonderful and everything she said, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just don't know if it was necessary in that space. Um, I think it was useful um, as like an example of if we're starting conversations about race, who do we want in the room? We want people who want to fix racism in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, and there is no one 
one-stop shop to fix it all or this is how we start this conversation and this is the only way we can ever start this conversation. It's just the idea of centering the, the marginalized or, or black and brown folks that are impacted by racism most immediately um, that helps in these forums. And I've done it a few times. Um, I helped launch Broadway for Black Lives Matter, uh, the reboot or Broadway for Black Lives Matter again. And we did a three-day forum and it was the first time BAC had ever really called out racism on Broadway. Um, Cause I know Broadway is in our name, but that's not our game. Like we use theater and like our power and our privilege to work in communities um, lo- at a local level. And so our first day was only for black people. Like there, the invitation was like, you can't come into this room. Like you're gonna have to stand outside of the club like Chris Brown said. Um, if you are not BIPOC. And we realized we had never had a space like that before, mm-hmm. right? So in hosting a, a podcast forum, for lack of a better term, or a panel for Black listeners, it would be like, oh, I haven't really heard too, you know, white um I, I don't know if you guys, I can't say if you guys are cis or not, but uh, women mm-hmm. just host a space for black people to talk about racism. What that's, that's new. And so all of, all of a sudden you have a new demographic of human beings that feel not only included, but heard and amplified. Mm-hmm. And, um, centered, and it yeah. takes, mm-hmm. yes. And it, it takes the, the power and the privilege that you guys have by, you know, being the baddies that you are and having the social media following that you do um, in the community of chatty broads where all of a sudden white people have to listen to black folks, Mm -hmm. which is cool. Um, So that's usually why I say in forums. uh, And I think a lot of people say in forums about racism, start with black and brown people. Um, Some people are really radical and they're like, don't ever put a white person in the space. I don't want to hear from them, which is like, I understand that sentiment because what is there to say other than I want to be an ally or a co-conspirator right. in dismantling this system with you? Um, I do not have any idea what your experience has right. been, what it will be, how this affects you emotionally, but I can empathize with your experience. We tired of hearing, a lot of us are tired of hearing empathy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's not practical for us. So when we start talking about our experiences and then a white person like volunteers or chimes in, for some people, that's very triggering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I, I think it's about co-conspirators. That's usually what I say instead of allies, because it's, it's more fun and zesty, um, <laughs> but also it's more practical, right? The word ally has been abused and used so much. Mm. Uh, I want to say in give or take the last decade, but no one really knows what an ally is or what an ally does. Um, And a co-conspirator, you hear that and you're like, conspirator, that's an active, like, it sounds aggressive, but it's just active. That's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, And so that's why I usually say co-conspirators. It allows them to figure out what their role is. Um, Someone said this on the Mm -hmm. panel in the last episode, figuring out your lane. Yeah and then staying in it. Sometimes the lane the lane and the role changes and shifts. Um, sometimes you'll have a, a BIPOC individual say, I actually would like this white person to come into this space with me. Okay, absolutely. 
you know, not going to negate your needs or your experiences. If you think that they're going to add to the conversation, hell yeah, bring them on in. Um, but it's just like, it's an idea for a starting point. It would be the same in conversations on like, um, the issues indigenous folk face, right? I'm not gonna come in there and volunteer myself as tribute to have that conversation until I'm invited or if mm-hmm. I'm like welcomed or asked. Sure, um, or like survivors. You wouldn't be, someone wouldn't come in and be like, oh yeah, my sister is a survivor. So I'm, I mean, you might, yes, but that right. probably wouldn't be as appropriate. I also was just thinking about how when we originally framed the conversation, that first one was specifically, um, we were initially labeling it as like um, experiences of BIPOC people. Mm-hmm. So that might have also added to that misstep absolutely. of like, absolutely. given the context of the conversation that we were framing it within, it probably wasn't appropriate to have someone on who doesn't have the experience of being a BIPOC person since absolutely. that was like the, uh, the first intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but it's like, th- and this is what comes out of it that's super dope, right? You're highlighting what the intention is. Um, I've had to do that a few times in the last six months being like, oh, you know what? This may have been a misstep um, because like my intention didn't match my action. I had to have a conversation. With, so I love Jesus, but I can't stand Christianity in America. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, the church I go to in New York um, my white Australian uh, pastor, she says some really weird bl- stuff about like black on black crime this summer after we had had a like big church wide like Juneteenth celebration and a conversation on race with the black pastors we have at our church. Um, and, you know, our church says black lives matter and we're going to come march with you guys at all of these protests. After that, she had said some really messed up stuff on social media. Um and it wasn't her intention, uh, but the way it was received and the words she used right. were really harmful and damning. Um, and when we like highlighted it or called it out or called her into the room to break it down, there was no interest in deviating from her intention. Cause she was like, mm. well, that's not what I meant, mm. right? I'm sorry that you guys perceived it this way. Or I'm sorry that you guys feel this way about the words that I use, but I, I do stand by what I said. It's just not how I intended to say it. That you can't work with that. Right. But this we can work with because now we're having a conversation about, you know, this is how we framed it. This is what our intentions are. And it may not have been reflected in our actions. So going forward, it's not throw that all away and say that was garbage and trash, but instead we're better informed to move forward. Um, there's a... I think it's a Ghanaian, I never, Ghanaian from Ghana, a proverb um, called Sankofa, which means to go back and get it. Mm. Um, And so the term essentially means um, the story or the parable is there's a man that's traveling on a long journey and he's almost at his destination and he realizes he forgot something very important, vital to his journey back at home. Um, And he could just keep going and, and get to the place that he's trying to get to, but he really needs whatever the heck he left mm-hmm. behind him. Um, and the idea is there's no shame in turning back around and going back to get what you need so mm-hmm. that you can be best prepared for where you're going to. And that's what it is, right? Cause now in the future, it's like, um, yeah, I made this misstep or 
um, this may have been like qualified as a mistake or this may have been deemed as wrong, um, but I don't have to dismiss it altogether. I can use it to better inform me moving forward. Mm -hmm. Right. I can remember it next time. Yeah. Exactly. So I always, and I try to remind that just as a human being, like Sankofa, like just humble yourself, bro, and turn around, go back Mm. and get it. Um, one of my like mentors and she's the best Dr. Tanya Pettiford Watts taught me that. Um, and it kind of helps me engage not only as an activist and an advocate, but a human being, uh, because none of us are perfect in this work. We have to make mistakes. We have to, how are we going to figure out what, you know, what we're going towards or what we need if we don't mess up first. Um, and that's literally like the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly. parenting, it's relationships, it's friendships, it's career, it's like literally mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, it's it's that whole notion of like, <laughs> are, are you really like, is this the hill that you want to die on? Right, right. Or do you just want to go back down the hill and say, you know what, I do need something from down here, um, and I and I think that's perfectly okay and. It, it takes us out of that individualist mindset that we have in, you know, a westernized society. And it puts us into a more community based model, um, because that also means you have to be able to be corrected um, by your loved ones and not your loved ones. You have to mm-hmm. be able to have conversations with people you don't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you know, be able to choose from what capacity you can lean into being in community with mm. other people. Mm. And in this community it, um, of Chatty Broads, there's an opportunity to amplify not the voices, like the voiceless, because we've always had voices. I'm Like I said, I've been doing this work for almost 10 years now, and I'm only 25. Mm. Um, so we, this movement is not new. Like everything that's happening, unfurling from um, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Nina Pop and Tony McDade, all of that is not a new conversation. It happened in 2016, it happened in 2015, 2013 with Sandra Bland and Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and Mike Brown. But it also happened when I was in elementary school. You know, it's mm-hmm. happened to some of my classmates where like there are there are students that I know that were beat by the police and then had to go to class the next day. Mm-hmm. I was accused as a perpetrator in my own sexual assault in college by the police. Mm-hmm. I was made a suspect in a crime that was committed against me um, just because they didn't believe my black ass. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened to my like my parents grew up in Jim Crow era. Right. My dad grew up in Florida. Um, and Detroit. So those are two really aggressive um, places to live as a a black, a mixed black man. Um, And my mom grew up in Chicago and her trailer park that she grew up in was featured on Oprah's episode for most impoverished city in America when I was like six or seven years old. And my grandma still live in the same town. So like these this movement is not new and engaging with it is not new when it comes to amplifying the experience, uh, the experiences of um, the marginalized or directly impacted black and brown folks. Um, it's about figuring out how you can engage with them from a community model and not like a, 
this is the thing that I think we're going to do because this is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That is a white supremacist lens to look through. And we all have it. We all have that, that gaze um, that we, we move through and move towards. So um, I think that gets into like the next point about intention, uh, intentionality and accountability too. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, and I, also if you guys ever have questions or want to like deviate, please interrupt me. Oh, um, I, I was just thinking when you were saying, when you were talking about, when you're saying 2016, 2015, that was, that was something that I know that I was making continue, like continually making the mistake of throughout the episode saying like in mm. these current times and because of what yeah. happened with George Floyd, instead of being like, no, 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 this has always been happening and I've had the privilege of just really being, you know, made aware of it re- more recently so that I can say something like that in an episode that's talking about anti-racism. And it's just like, no, 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 that's wrong. So I know that that right. was just something that in the episode that I was doing that, you know, when you and I were having a conversation later and I've had conversations with other people, it was like that I needed to be like held accountable for. I mean, also, the thing that is a little bit unprecedented, at least in recent times, is um, white people as a really big hole in our nation getting to be or or choosing to be a part of the conversation. And I will say that that is like something that makes it maybe like unprecedented times or like mm-hmm. in these times because well, in the pandemic times but so we say i say in the pandemic times but when i was saying that in this episode mm. i was referring to um you know the murder of Raci- George right, 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 yes. right. Ra- just yes. racism like yes. it yeah like yeah. it started this year yeah but i feel and i feel like it's both and right because mm-hmm. no matter what any of us say these are unprecedented unprecedented i can't talk um <laughs> weird crazy strange times we're living in right i like for for me for example i can only use myself as an example because i'm the person living this life Mm -hmm. um i've never lived by myself uh in a city that i'm not familiar with in an apartment where i know no one (laughs) um (laughs) in a town that i've never lived in before with masks, like I got a collection of masks over there. Yeah. There are Trump parade rallies happening and the election is over outside my apartment. I'm scared to go outside mm. sometimes. Um, on top of that, I have, you know, a mom who is immunocompromised, recovering from mm. a huge, you know, massive surgery that I, ha- I have not seen my mother mm. in ages. Um, probably since like May of this year. And even then I only saw her for seven days, you know, with a little sister who's working her first job in a pandemic as an essential worker while in school. Like these are weird, crazy, unprecedented times. And it's okay to say that. Um, But in saying that we have to also honor um, that it's been like this for a lot of us forever. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I say both. And it's one of my favorite terms. Cause it's like, okay, yes, but also this, yeah. um, cause they can, bo- they can both exist and still be true. Um, yeah. So, so, and we, we're all doing it because we don't know how to navigate these conversations. Cause these conversations are new to us, mm-hmm. even for BIPOC folks or, or, you know, those of us that work in activism and advocacy, 
we haven't had so many people interested in coming into the room <laughs> to participate and um, say, oh yeah, we want to dismantle racism mm-hmm. with y'all. We're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I mean, come in, we ain't got no chairs for y'all. Y'all just stand in the back. It is new and this wave is different because we are living in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's important to highlight is the why or the root of why it's different um because all of a sudden we have a really privileged country um that you know we live in being in some way disenfranchised all at the same time by this big outer thing called the coronavirus Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden all of us are staying at home we can't go out a lot of us have lost jobs we can't go to work a lot of our family members are, are getting sick and having to be in hospitals by themselves and we can't see them. Um, people are having to say their last words to their their grandparents over FaceTime if a nurse has an iPhone on them, you know. Um, and, all, and now we're all sitting in our, our apartments, our houses or wherever, you know, it is that we we stay. And the one thing a lot of us have access to, and not all of us, is this thing, this cell phone right here. We have social media. We have, some of us have televisions. um, And even when we don't have those things, we find out in conversation with other people that George Floyd was murdered on camera. We all saw the video. Um, And not a lot of us got the option to not see the video. I I didn't watch that video for, I want to say five or six weeks. And that meant I had to get off social media. I wasn't watching TV. Um, But a lot of people didn't have a choice. The same for finding out about Breonna Taylor. We found out about Breonna Taylor, which happened in March because George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey happened later on down the line. Um, And even for Ahmaud, like that was February. So all of these things are happening mm-hmm. and George Floyd is amplifying it. And we don't have the, t- the opportunity to turn our heads away because we are in a global shutdown or a yeah. lockdown nationally. Um, so when people are forced to reconcile or not even reconcile, when people are first to reckon with um, those images, unless, you know, qualified as a, a sociopath, there's something that happens in your gut that says that's off. Mm-hmm. that something's wrong that person should not have his knee on that man's neck mm-hmm. that everyone around them is screaming saying hey what's up that's not it this is not how you de-escalate a non-violent situation what's happening here over a, a fake 20 dollars an allegedly fake 20 dollars bill no 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 so all of a sudden everyone sees that and um it's it's like the mean girls um, ideology. Everyone wants to um, be on the same side. Mm-hmm. So all of like the whole world is like, nope, that's not it, chief. And everybody else who's been like, that's not it, chief, for years. Um, all of a sudden, they have all of this backed up support, and it's because we've all been holed up and housed, and mm-hmm. we have no choice but to watch these things that other people have the privilege of turning their eyes yeah. away from. Yeah, you know. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's really important to say it's both unprecedented and it's been happening forever. This is how my people were brought to this land, um, was against their will with knees on their necks saying, if you don't come with us, you gonna die. 
And a lot of them died anyways and have been dying for years and years and years. Um, and we also live in a system that educates us in a way that says, actually, all of this was resolved in like 1969. Totally. You know, like in or, our case, or in the 1800s uh, with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yes. Slavery was over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. I cut it off. It was right all there done. In Springfield and uh, Illinois. And they got <laughs> so mad at me. They shot me in the head. Like, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. In fact, like they said last episode, slavery still exists. Mm-hmm. It's why I can't shop at Victoria's Secret anymore. Because mm-hmm. they use people prison labor for free to make all of their products. And now I'm just like, dang, I really loved Love Spell. But mm-hmm. if they're mixing it down in Mississippi um, at their you know maximum security penitentiary, I'm not engaging with that. Even my university used pr- like prison labor um, to run a lot of offsite like campus dining facilities and stuff right so when you find out that not only the system that educated you is educating you so um you believe these things don't exist anymore or that they've been resolved or you know mlk solved it all um but then you find out the things that you're investing in or your uh the organizations that you're a part of even if not by choice are like fueling the funds uh, for that to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's, everyone's like waking up now and it's not like woke, the woke Olympics to see who can be like the most down and the most aware and says all the right things at the right time in the right ways. That's not what it is. It's just like, okay, it's a lot of information here. How can I make this a part of my routine? So as I have these conversations going forward, once again, I am more informed than I was six months ago, five years ago. How, how can I challenge the privilege that I have on a daily basis? All right, Brads, we have to take a quick pause. And uh, if you have a little one at home, you know the distance learning is hard on everyone, really. Um, For me, my biggest concern is if my daughter is getting taught everything she needs to reach her learning milestones. I know I'm a good mom, but I won't lie. I'm scared I'm going to miss something and mess her up for life. (laughs) Okay, so it's irrational, I know. But I'll take all the help I can get. And thanks to Homer. Homer is my most favorite. Oh, my God. Thanks to Homer. I have the support I need in making sure she can continues to learn and grow. Homer is awesome if you have kiddos age two through eight. It's the expert designed, kid tested and loved program for early learning in areas like reading, math, social and emotional learning, creativity, and thinking skills. And it's great because instead of just one standard program, Homer combines your child's interests and learning level to create something that keeps them engaged and excited as they go. It's really incredible. And if you uh, have apprehension about screen time at all, I get it. The internet is kind of a black hole and you never know what unoccupied tiny hands will click on. Um, But with Homer, you don't need to be worried. They are completely ad-free and safe for independent play. Mm. Ember, my daughter, has so much fun learning with Homer and it's helped her. I've talked about it before when we've done ads for Homer just in ways that I can't even like thank them enough. I'm obsessed with them. And I also have seen her confidence grow um, when she masters a new skills, which as a mom, there's I mean, there's nothing better in the whole world than seeing your child succeed at something new. Homer is expert tested, kid loved, and it's research backed. Using the Learn and Grow app for just 15 minutes a day is proven to increase reading scores by 74 percent. 
There's a ton. And I've seen it firsthand. Wow. Gigantic. Visit yeah. learnwithhomer.com slash chatty to start a free 60-day trial today. That's learnwithhomer.com slash chatty for your 60-day free trial. Two months free. Um, okay, Brods. Well, there are so many things I've always wanted to know about my body that aren't urgent enough to go to a doctor for. And of course, I could consult Dr. Google. But if you've ever done that, you know that you'll spend the next 24 hours convinced you have a serious, serious illness. And that's why I'm so yes. excited to tell you about a solution that sits somewhere in the middle of the two. And that's Everly Well at Home Lab Tests. Human bodies are so complicated, of course, but with Everly Well, they help make sense of everything. They offer over 30 different at-home lab tests, everything from thyroid health to indoor-outdoor allergies to heart health to STD tests. Mm -hmm. They've got everything. And here's the breakdown. Everly Well mails you the test of your choice along with super easy-to-follow instructions. You'll administer the test at home and then you mail it back your you mail back your kit with the free shipping label and a physician physician will review your test and within days your results will be sent to you digitally. It's so very convenient. It's very convenient. I've taken their STD test which was super easy and thorough and I also just ordered my heart health test because you know mama is 32 now and I want to <laughs> check on my ticker, okay? Also got one for Evan. Uh so go online and check out Everly Well and you'll see the wide variety of all the different tests tests that you can choose from to start understanding your health you can check out everly well today and for 20 percent off uh an everly well at home lab test you can visit everlywell.com slash chatty and enter code chatty that's e-v-e-r-l-y-w-e-l-l.com slash chatty everlywell.com slash chatty code chatty for 20 percent off your test everly well at home lab tests your answers your way there is a quote from Mickey Kendall, I believe. Um, she wrote Hood Feminism, which is a really dope book that people should just read for, for fun. Um, it essentially is a... She's built a series of essays and essentially a whole new theory of feminism based off of how feminism exists in America, which is essentially white feminism. Um, and she says that the intention of an individual mean like can mean nothing if their intention is more important to them than how it was received by the person it impacts. Mm -hmm. I probably fumbled the bag on that quote, but essentially the idea is if our intention, say I meant for something to come off like this and my intentions were good. Say my email came off like super awful. Um, even if, I worked my hardest to tone police and sense, uh, censor myself. Um, it was just rude and it was inefficient or it was ineffectual and you guys received it um, from a place of offense. My intentions could have been good all day long, but that does not matter because it is like the way it's been perceived. Um, and so that's what comes up a lot in intentionality is our, we're, do, we're all doing our best, hopefully, um, fingers crossed. But it does not matter if the people who are directly impacted or harmed cannot receive it mm -hmm. um, or, you know, are more maimed by it. So that's why I really thought it was dope the way you guys had the, the moment before last episode, um, because 
it named and identified not only your intentions, but said, this is where we may have fallen short Mm -hmm. for a lot of people in our community. This is what we're going to do, not only to honor the people who have taken the time and space to be here with us on part one and part two of this panel, um, but the people who are listened, who are listening in, um, because a lot of people who aren't black or brown learned a lot from those first two episodes. So really, it's just another opportunity to stretch our capacity and stretch our intentionality and say, what we really mean to do is this. Mm-hmm. We want to create a space where people can feel welcome to share, honored in their experience, um, not completely, you know, beaten, battered, ragged and weary after sharing their trauma. Um, and that be recognized while we're also trying to find better ways to support and lift them up in the process. Mm-hmm. And that's what accountability is. Um, it's actionable. And there's so many conversations happening about accountability right now. You got accountability task force at, at a university and in corporate jobs and in the entertainment space. And it's like, who can hold us accountable and how? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of doing that, though, I think what y'all did was you just made more space for more people um, to share their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're having a conversation like this, which could just stand to expand other people's capacity that like stand in a position of privilege about, oh, all right, you know, I made a Facebook comment on somebody's post that I disagreed with a couple months ago. And my intentions were to educate, to inform. My intentions were to call them out. My intentions were to, to let them know I disagree with them and they are wrong and this is why. But my intentions did not match the actions as they were received by the person. How can I adjust? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just like a human lesson. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at it all the time, um, but I'm trying to to be better. So it's it's about having the willingness, um, the the grace, and the mercy to ask to be corrected, and then ask people to bear with you as you're being corrected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that falls a lot in intentional uh, intentionality and accountability. Because then it protects not only the minority um, audience, um, but it gives the opportunity for those who are white or privileged or um, not affected by the conversation at hand to expand um, the ways in which they choose to engage in this space Mm -hmm. or what they're willing to learn, who they're willing to listen to, right? Yeah. So I think that's pretty big on what my thoughts are at intentionality and accountability. It's also really great to be brief, right? Because when you want to like apologize for something, for those of us affected by racism, we've spent most, if not all of our lives being apologized to. Um, And the apology usually comes with a caveat and that caveat is I'm probably going to do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that that offended you. Right. And then that person says that same thing again is why I don't, I can't engage with my church anymore mm-hmm. because that apology, I was like, okay, that's not a real apology. And I know you are about to do it again. And I'm trying to correct you in a, from a loving place, like being nice and, and talking about how your intentions don't necessarily match your actions and how that's hurt or harmed a community. Um, But you don't want to take the correction. So what, why would I subject myself 
to that again and again and then it get then that gets you into cancel culture territory which like i do not necessarily agree with but i understand why it exists um and so when you're talking about prioritizing your intentions then you're living in that individualistic white supremacist mindset that we already know and are familiar with so when we hear an apology it's like okay girl yeah um karen i hear you (laughs) yeah yes i know it's girl it's emotional for me too and that's like that's the response we have and then immediately the thing is like well you're just aggressive or you're bitter or you're not willing to like understand that we're like we're trying to work with you we're trying to help we're doing our best Mm -hmm. it's like Girl, if you only knew how many conversations I've had of the same vein with all of these people um, who say they stand in solidarity with us, but in action, in pra- like practical terms, I'm going to be subjected to the same racist like organizations, systems, engage like interactions. It's going to continue happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think accountability is so important because it shifts. Um, it shifts that apology into something that's actionable. And when you're just like, you know what? This did not work. We understand this didn't work for a lot of people. However, we honor like the work that happened here, the stories that were shared here. Um, and to go even further, we're going to have more conversations uh, with people. We're going to not make this like a one-stop shop. Here's our conversation on racism or race or anti-racism. But it's just going to be a thing that's a part of our lives mm-hmm. forever. And I think that's what a lot of people are trying to figure out is we're all so overwhelmed by this grandiose nature of racism and how it exists in our society. And we don't know what to do with it. And I think it's pretty clear that we're actually just sowing and tilling the soil of seeds that were planted light years ago right now. And it's getting real fertile with this pandemic. Um, and as we're doing that, we're just, we just need more hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need people to be willing to like, listen to us and not, not scapegoat their way out of being there, like having their feet held to the fire, essentially. Right. Um, because we're trying to make it better for everybody, but especially those who are being hurt by the systems that we're talking about. Well, and when we're talking about, like, um, intention and then, like, apologies when the intention doesn't match the impact, I think that this just sort of came to me of, like, we need to, um, we need to unpack our intentions before we give the apology, too, of what our intention Mm -hmm. is for the apology, because then if your intention is to just absolve yourself of the wrongdoing, then your intention in that moment is not good. So maybe your initial intention in part one was good, but then if your intention of going into the apology is to clear yourself, then that intention isn't right. Like your intention should be to, like you were saying, to honor the person that didn't get hurt or was impacted by your initial impact. So... Yeah, I feel like that's maybe like a good thing to take away is to think about what your intention is when you speak on the initial like intention and impact. 
That's the exact thing. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said that because as once I finished, I was like, did any of that make sense? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But that's ex- that, that's exactly what it is. Is and and this is for any apology in general, right? If I'm going mm-hmm. to my partner to apologize to them, um, just so I can be absolved of whatever wrongdoing I did, and so they can be like, it's all right, like so it's they okay. can move you. on from it. Yeah. So they can get over it then I should, I have no business apologizing Mm -hmm. because what am I apologizing for? I'm apologizing for myself. I might as well go in the bathroom and look in the mirror (laughs) because I like, clearly I'm ready to like move past it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and I think that, you know, is another like tenant of white supremacy is you like, we look at colonialism, right? We, we look at Thanksgiving, which is coming up and we're like, Oh, um, actually like the apology has happened and 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 we all value indigenous people and it's actually it doesn't matter anymore because like we live in a great place now like there's an absolution there that's not acknowledging the harm and the impact and the genocide that happened to millions of people um and in doing that there's like not even any way for the impacted or the marginalized to move mm. because they're being told the thing doesn't exist, right? You're, this is the wall of oppression or this is the apology. And these are the people that are trying to like get in there. But if it's a wall, like I can't move past that. The mm-hmm. apology is the cutoff. The apology is the end. The apology is, hey, um, we've, we've done it. So I, I think looking back at your intentions before like you enter into a space of apology um, and saying, okay, let's break this down. What and who am I apologizing for? Is it for myself? Um, is it for the other individual? Is it going to honor the experience or the feelings that person has, even if I think they're wrong, mm-hmm. right? Even if I just don't agree. Mm. Um, if I feel impelled for some reason to um, apologize, then I have to suss out what the root of that apology is going to be. Otherwise, it's wasted breath um, for a lot of people. And I, I think that's why when George Floyd passed and like so many Black people, I don't know if you talked to people that were like, yeah, I, got, I had like 400 unread text messages just from white people I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, saying, oh my gosh, like, Michaela, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I can't imagine how hard this is. What are you apologizing to me for? Right? What, like, what are we really, are you apologizing for racism as it exists in America? Because in which case, you should have sent me this text, like, six months ago, when um, the pregnant mother was shot, um, and she was like eight and a half months pregnant, and she was shot in her stomach four times outside of her apartment. That was on the news. You should apologize to me for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should have apologized to me in 2014. You should have apologized to me when you called me nigga a couple weeks, uh, like years ago. And you thought it was gravy. You thought it was cool because we were all sitting around with, with friends in a house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's sussing out what the apology is for who the apology is for and what you want to action off of that apology. Um, And I think that's where accountability comes in um, is now that I know this has happened and I'm apologizing for it. It's not that I want to absolve myself and pretend like it didn't happen in the first place. Um, 
but it's instead going to help me move forward and engaging with you from a more enlightened space, mm-hmm. right? Respecting and, and honoring whatever it is that a person is going through. Um, and that kind of makes me think of like the difference between reconciliation and conciliation. There's um, a lot of talk about racial reconciliation and and us reconciling with one another to really come to terms with what racism is and how we can break it down. But we've never lived in a world where race was handled justly. So there's nothing to reconcile mm. from the mm-hmm. second, the, what was it? The Mayflower and the Santa Maria, the second they all landed in, um, up there in the North of America <laughs> and in like Jamestown and stuff. Um, from the second those, those um, ships landed, there was no interest in looking at people's differences and saying, we can be one, we can be the same. And the transatlantic slave trade also further reinforced that there was no interest in people being treated in a just or equitable way. So there's no way to reconcile racism in America if we don't, first of all, uh, first uh, come to terms or conciliate with how we use race um, to build, how we've used race to build this country. Oh, so you can't r- reconciliate if there's no conciliation in the first place. You got to yeah, do, yeah. yeah, you got to do the conciliation in the first place. That's funny because I'm um, not really familiar with that term either. And that like conciliation, you, mm-hmm. that's, but that's yeah. really interesting. I, I wasn't super familiar with it either. Uh, and when I got to college, I was like, what, what do you mean conciliate? And this is again, um, that mentor that I have, uh, I call her Dr. T. But she runs a theater company. It's an anti-racist theater company called the Conciliation Project. And that's their whole, like, that's one of their values is understanding that in order to reconcile or get to a place of healing, you have to first conciliate with what's gotten you here in the first place. Um, So instead, like, instead of just being like, oh, racism, you know, is hard to deal with, but we're going to work to a better place. It's like, why does racism exist? Where is it rooted? Um, how do I perpetuate the, the function of racism in the society? How do I understand racism? Do I really get it? Do I know what implicit bias is? Um, am I implicit bias tired? Do I know what internal racism is? Do I know what external racism racism is? Do I understand that reverse racism doesn't exist? Do I understand that a BIPOC individual does not have the capacity to be racist to me, a white person, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, do I have a common understanding of race and its function and racism Mm -hmm. and its function? If I get that, then we can start moving towards reconciliation. But that's going to take, like I said, a lifetime. I don't even know if we'll see the fruits of our labors and the conversations that we're having um, on a big grand scale. Um, yeah, because certainly... But if I can, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because currently it's... Zero. Yeah. Currently it's sort of like a... It's sort of a privilege to have access to that information, to be honest, mm-hmm. and to have access to that education. And I think that um, people like myself take it for granted because of just like the communities that I'm a part of online and offline that, you know, um, before George Floyd passed and after, you know, it was conversations that people in my circle in the real world and on the online world were already having. So it was like, 
you know, when we're talking about these terms, it's as simple for me as just swiping through my Instagram feed and getting educated as I go. But like, I think that people like myself have to also acknowledge that there are white people that literally do not. And I think that white people have to consider that when we're engaging with other white people in spaces online and offline, that I am privy to to a certain form of informal education that other people don't have access to like I do just because of their geographic location to the point Mm -hmm. in life they are with their age, you know, all these certain things like even, you know, my mother-in-law who's in her sixties, like people on her Instagram or in her life who still may be part of the liberal crowd, like just aren't having the same kinds of discussions that like maybe people in my circle are. And so I think that that's important for white people to remember when we engage with other people too. It's like, now that you know what's going on and now that you understand all these terms, like don't go and beat other white people over the head with it. That's not, I I don't, I I personally feel like I have abused that privilege of having that education. And I feel that other white people sometimes do as well to be the smartest person in the room and the wokest person in the room. And I feel like that really actually does a disservice ultimately to the people that are impacted by yeah these i don't know anyway no it's it's true because it it makes you it it gets us into a conversation about capacity right mm-hmm. we can only engage with people from the capacity that we have available to ourselves but we also have to remember what like the other individual has available to share mm-hmm. or what they have the ability to learn or take in um and what it what may prevent them from being able to absorb information or or change their like their belief systems because what we're asking is for a lot of like white people in America to uproot everything they know and like just throw it out the window over the balcony and nobody wants to do that that makes someone like bristle and the first thing you want to do is defend yourself and what you know and that's just a human instinct that's a human reaction Um, And so I think in honoring the capacity of both, like of everybody in a community, it reminds us, one, that no one is holier than thou. Mm. Um, But two, that in order to like work through this, we have to chip away, you know, at the block to really shift the mindsets that people have had for hundreds and hundreds of like for centuries. Yeah. You know, um, And I I mean, I think black folks are experiencing the same thing. My conversations with my parents on race and racism are not fun. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents can't stand (laughs) that I help organize protests and that I work as a a police mediator because they think I'm volunteering my my safety and my well-being Mm. for a cause that's just not going to shift Mm. or that I'm risking my career, for example, by leading a forum on on racism on Broadway. And it's like, yeah, actually, I have that thought, too. When I was hosting those forums back in June, calling all of Broadway and all of the greater theater community, regional and beyond out, I was like, I might never get to be in a play ever again. Mm -hmm. Just because people don't have the capacity to, like, listen to what I have to say. Um, And so I think it 
brings into that whole notion of developing a communal mindset that offers grace and mercy um, in this these spaces because we're going to mess up and some people aren't going to be ready to receive today, but they might be in six months yep. if I keep engaging with them in the way they receive. It's like being a teacher, right? Yeah. Um, in the class that I'm teaching right now, we have this big curriculum plan. It was real cool and specific. And then we got to class and we realized the girls needed to be taught differently, right? They had individual like ways they could receive information. And so we had to specify the curriculum per individual student. And a lot of people don't have the capacity to do that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, but I will say the amount of work that we've gotten done, though it took like different venues and different pathways and it didn't work this week, but it worked the next. The work that we got out of it is a full performance that's going to happen on Saturday to honor their stories and their work. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we were like, the only way we can give you this information is if you receive it the way we want to give it. Mm. No, totally. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't dismantle privilege. That doesn't dismantle the notion of like being woke make, uh, is the only thing that can make you be a good person. Like it doesn't help the movement. Um, and so in, in coming to terms with figuring out capacity, not only for yourself, but for Others are saying, hey, what, how can I communicate this with you? How are you willing mm -hmm. to have this conversation with me? And then when someone says, I'm not doing it, I'm not changing, I'm like, I'm, it's, that's dead to me. I do, like, I think that Black people are less than, all right, well, you know what? I'll hit you up uh, at a later date because <laughs> I can't engage with you um, right now. And I have, I have friends that think that way. Like, I grew up with kids that think I am less, less than them um, to the point. And I, d I just did not know until I was grown and getting on Facebook when I had no business to get on Facebook, mm -hmm. you know? And you hear the terms like you people or, or the blocks are really going to be their own demise. And I'm just like, girl, what? you were my best friend in seventh grade. We loved Justin Bieber. We wrote the lyrics down together on, on our notebook paper. Um, what do you mean you people? Mm. What do you like? What, what is the heart, the intention? What are we trying to figure out the root of? Um, and I understand that I can't have that conversation with everybody because not everyone wants to talk to me because no one wants to be forced or thrust into change. And I think that's happened with a lot of people, yeah. um, this year, um, well, and then there's the other side of me, that radical activist that likes to disrupt shit. That's like, ah, fuck it. Let's let's get totally. into it. Let's fight. Yeah, I was going to say just when you're talking about capacity, like I can just tell you as an individual also have like just just because of you are who you are, you have a capacity, a capacity to engage with people and be like, let's talk about it. Let's get <laughs> into it. And the truth is not everyone has that capacity. You know, it's like mm -hmm. emotionally, emotional, mental energy or whatever. It's like we were talking about in the last episode that you brought up. It's like you you have you have your lane and like you're able to engage with people in ways that maybe other people wouldn't have the capacity to be able to just because you're you. But that's true. And it also there's this so there's this cool thing by um, Deepa Iyer. I really hope I said that name right. Mm -hmm. um, Deepa Iyer of the Building Movement Organization. 
I could be getting all this wrong. They have a social change ecosystem like map that they made. And it's like, what is your role as an agent of change in the social change ecosystem? So if we have like in the center of this map, like equity, justice, liberation, let's put those three in the center. What is our role in getting to that, that center, that core? Um, so there's like, are you a guide or a facilitator or a teacher? Um, someone that can give people information and they can observe it, like absorb it and you can help them learn it. Are you a storyteller, artist that can kind of take history as it exists, represent it in some sort of art form and kind of help people vision for like what has been wrong and what we could be um, to be right or to be just. There are healers, um, people who can help people deal with trauma and in ways they've been harmed by systems of oppression. There are also disruptors, people who can take to the streets and say, mm -hmm. all right, you know, all of the protest chants that I can think of probably shouldn't say out loud <laughs> on here. Um, or are you an organizer? Are you really good at networking and building systems and structures that will outlast you as an individual so that other people can come in, organize in accordance to what their community needs? Um, and that helps people kind of find their lanes, right? I can exist in a couple of those spaces. I know how to teach, so I can work as a guide. I'm real loud, so I'm great at a protest. Um, I'm also a pretty good organizer because I know how to code switch and I can talk to a police officer. Um, Usually without losing my cool, I might feel nauseous and want to throw up afterwards. Um, but I can do that to protect and honor the safety of my other friends. I also have white friends, my roommate, Savvy, who's the dopest. Um, and like a lot of our friends in New York who, when all of these protests were happening, they had to figure out their roles um, in my life to figure out how to best support mm. me. Mm. Right. So if we're going to a protest... Um, and there are police officers trying to incite violence, right? They have volunteered their bodies <laughs> to come in with me to be like, yo, do not engage with them. Like um, having like cycling protesters off to safety and engaging with police officers. I've white friends who have been like, yeah, no, no, no. I will stand in front of you to do this interaction, right? Um, so they understand their role in that social situation, that circumstance that protects the equity of all of us using their privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and so that map is really, really cool because it kind of helps people figure out, all right, racism, we don't like it. We want to dismantle that. How? What can I do? Um, what's my lane? And I, yeah, I think that social change um, map is just a really cool way of breaking it down we because like you guys are like guides and and facilitate because you're hosting the space for this conversation right you know how to like organize and structure um the space where people of privilege can listen and learn mm -hmm. which is really really freaking cool and not everybody can do all of the things in the map um sometimes i have to be a storyteller i'm a storyteller when i go on set I'm telling a black story as a black woman about some really cool black athletes. And that is the story that I'm going to put out into the, the ether that will hopefully offer, offer healing for how people perceive black folk, mm -hmm. um, especially like a really famous black family. So 
um, yeah, that map is really helpful in helping people sort out what their lane is. And it's not a one size fits all. You don't mm-hmm. have to be one, any one thing all the time. In fact, it would behoove us to be able to figure out how we can exist in what capacity in each of those spaces so that we can best support those who need to be lifted up or supported mm-hmm. um, in different circumstances. Yeah, and figuring out how we can make the best use of our privilege too, right? Like all people, not just mm-hmm. talking about white people because each one of us mm-hmm. has a specific, specific set of privileges and I was kind of forced to think about that this year and be like, is the best use of my time and energy to be at a protest? Like, no, probably not. I have half a million fucking followers. Like I could use my time to do this or I could use my time to communicate with these people. And I'm definitely not always great at it. I don't mean like that, but like being like, Oh wait, this is a privilege that like not everyone else has. So like I should probably, I don't know something else and that humility in that space is like well i'm not always great at it it's like yeah well none of us are you know and being able to pick what works for you for not just you but like for your family for your friends um and also for the people that you seek to uplift that's the most effective way Mm -hmm. to move through this um because like for me in june july and august i had nothing but time So of course I'm going to be in the streets. I had my mask on, was like bringing hand sanitizer, bringing food to these protests. Um, But also I knew how to organize and get information out so that people Mm -hmm. could engage safely. So my Instagram used to be a cute place where I posted all of my selfies when instead I realized that's not how I want. I don't want to engage with social media, period. So I started using it to disseminate information. Now, the way the Instagram algorithm works is it pushes shit like that down because yeah. it's not aesthetic. It's not cute. Um, so if I post something about, hey, you know, um, this is where you can register to vote or this protest is happening at this time in this place. Beware there's police presence on this corner in this corner in riot gear. That's going to get pushed down by the, oh, this is my latte for the day or um, look at my cute hair or, you know, I'm at the beach today. That's going to get pushed down. So I s- realized that when those posts weren't doing well, the posts that I would like put up of my face or myself, mm-hmm. um, in my like outfits or if my face is beat and I got like a nice contour going on, <laughs> those would get like a lot of likes for the audience that I have. So I started using those posts to disseminate information. Mm. That stuff gets lifted up. And then all of a sudden people are sharing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's like from an organ, that's me leaning into my ability to organize um, and guide at the same time. So people could figure out what bail funds they could donate to, where to go register to vote, what polling hours were, um, the policy standards for different uh, elected officials, uh, the breakdown of different laws and regulations that were, we had uh, the ability to vote for in Virginia this year, they could go uh, to my page and they might see a cute selfie, but you swipe over and it's nothing but information. Mm. And I did that with my own website um, that's supposed to traditionally be used to market me as an actor. And I was like, actually, I'm going to use this to link to different community bail funds, organizations that need funding, um, or the link to Brianna Taylor's family's like page, um, or here, if you click this link, it's going to auto dial and send an email to the attorney general of whatever state for whatever mm-hmm. cause and finding what you can do that is specific to 
what you can effectively like put out into the world, I think is the first and best step we can take in engaging with this movement. Mm. Uh, Cause not everybody can do everything. Not everyone can be out in the streets. Not everyone is meant to be out in the streets. I've gone to p- protests and been, been like, you actually are not meant to be here. <laughs> You're, Bitch, you are go not helping home. the cause. <laughs> like I have, like here. I have stood in front of like, usually, and unfortunately, usually it's white women. But I've stood in front of white women and been like, "This protest isn't about you. <laughs> I need you. Like I need you to keep walking. We yeah. don't need to be taking a knee with the NYPD right now. That's not what we're here for. Mm. Move and start saying Breonna Taylor's name." And having those, con- but that's because I'm the kind of person who can do that mm-hmm. um, and can identify what <laughs> might be stopping the movement. And um, also I have to be humbled and corrected and be, and be like, actually, Michaela, that's not effective mm. for what we're trying to do here. Mm. Um, this is causing more harm uh, than it is good. Actually, nobody's visiting your website, so it doesn't matter <laughs> that you put all of those mm. resources up there. Or people are resource guided out. I built this huge resource guide like everybody else. Everyone has a resource guide. Um, And some people were like, "Uh, that's too comprehensive. I'm exhausted. I don't know where to start. And so I'm like, oh, okay. Well, let's find one thing and let's work with that. You want, let's have a book club. Let's read a book this month. It don't even, it don't even have to be about racism. Let's read Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, which is technically about racism but it's a novel and it's cute and it's fun and it has a cute cover i'm reading that uh, right now on my kindle it slaps it's really I it am. is really cute i am the i want if they make that into a movie i'm your girl if you listen to this i ain't getting the room for little fires everywhere but i'm telling you i am your girl for such a fun age kylie reed I used to nanny. I know what it is. I know what it is to nanny for a white family. I got I you. It. Can I can um, I backtrack on something quick? Because yeah, yeah, when you please. were bringing up messing up earlier, I did want to take a moment because in your email, you mentioned um, something that I did in the episode that you called a Karen corner. Do you mind explaining this? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, when I typed that, I was like, this is funny. So if someone who like, doesn't mind being ragged on reads this they're not gonna be offended but this also could be too far no when Um, i know when you when you when you wrote that it like hit where i'm like oh and i and it helped me process so much so i was like okay karen corner like can we talk about that (laughs) my jaw is dropped right now (laughs) um so i yeah i i often correct from a place of humor because <laughs> I'm uncomfortable but also I'm just like I want you to know like we're, we can be uncomfortable together yes um so Karen's corner essentially <laughs> is like um have you ever seen the video um there there are tons of videos where they call white people Karens and it's mm-hmm. usually a white woman that's screaming or or crying or it's just like I didn't mean to do it this way or, mm. or you're misunderstanding me or this wasn't what we tried to do. And I'm so sorry. I didn't do this right. The first time, like that's the energy. That's not what you sound like (laughs) at all, but that's my Karen corner voice. (laughs) And essentially it's a space that exists where white people usually more often than not white women, um, seek to absolve themselves Mm -hmm. from a, like 
a wrong that is or something they've perpetuated like harmfully into the world Mm -hmm. and they do it through a lens of emotion or empathy uh, or trying to like get people on their side Mm -hmm. to be like no I'm really a good person and I need you to know that like this I didn't mean to do it this way so Mm -hmm. like that's what I meant by Karen's corner um because automatically you have if there's a black person that's listening um, you have a black person who is forced to hold space for them. Yeah. Um, and all of those emotions are just being tossed on when all the black person say, Hey, or the, you know, BIPOC or the indigenous person or the Brown person said it was, Hey, this might not be it chief. Like I didn't need to hear you cry and, and, and talk, um, about how bad you feel about this thing. Mm-hmm. You, you could have just said, Hey, I'm not vibing with the way I went, went through this. Um, and I apologize and I'm going to correct it by doing this, that, mm-hmm. and the fourth. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what I meant by Karen's corner. What um, was it? So I think it was the, the beginning of the episode when you guys were talking about, um, not having indigenous people on the, the episode and how like you guys felt really, really bad about it. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the first 10, maybe seven, seven, eight minutes of the of episode. The first episode yeah, of the first panel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it didn't, it wasn't that deep. Like, we, you didn't have to spend that much time or take up that much space and right. saying what was already going to be revealed on the episode that there weren't any indigenous folks there, right? But what you guys did say was, we are going to make sure we make space to have an episode that is committed to indigenous people. And if, if anyone is indigenous, knows of indigenous organizations that need funds or would like to be a part of this episode, reach out like that. And that's all we need. Yeah, yeah, totally. Spaces, right. 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 Rather than an explanation. And yeah. And it's not to invalidate like the emotions or the feelings. Cause like you guys care, right. That's what it is. Um, but sometimes it's important to look at the roots of like, is my emotion present because like I'm embarrassed or I feel like I'm going to get in trouble in this space Um, or are my emotions present and being used as a, like a move of action. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I forcing BIPOC folk to hold space for me unnecessarily right now, Mm -hmm. knowing that they're about to listen to, a couple hours of, you know, racist experiences mm-hmm. that they've gone through, not like not even considering necessarily what the experiences of racism like are as they exist in the audience. Yep. yep. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think having a mind for, and I, ha- I have to do this as a, a teacher because like, I've never been incarcerated. Um, and I've never been on parole and I, I have family members and friends that have been infected, affected by mass incarceration. And I have personally been affected by mass incarceration, but not as specifically as my students. So am I forcing them to hold space for me um, in a in a room where I'm supposed to be centering their needs or their experiences or their emotions? Um, or am I getting down to try from an empathetic standpoint, be on the ground with them, like hands and knees getting dirty and sussing out what they feel, what they've gone through, their trauma and holding space for them effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what I meant by Karen's Corner. I, like I said, am sassy and I'm a Sagittarius, <laughs> so I'm a little crazy. <laughs> so, well, well, it um, makes sense because it's like evaluating um, 
one, what's a good use of our time and space since mm-hmm. that's the privilege that we're acting yep. off of. Yep. And then, um, is this for optics? Is this to make it look like I feel really bad mm-hmm. for not doing this? Yeah. Um, yeah. In order to but, absolve me. But and even and it's like what we were talking about earlier with the intentionality and I mean and that the but we were both doing. No, it. no. But what I'm saying you. is, 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 even if, even if there was that, like, even if you you dig deep and you're like, no, it was because I genuinely felt bad about it. Oh, sure. Like you said, yeah. What's what's the uh, what amount of time we're about to have this episode we're unloading and asking so much of BIPOC people, are we going to sit there and focus on my mm-hmm. feelings during mm-hmm. this? And yeah. that was, I, I so appreciated that in the email because after, <laughs> after I read that, I did start like cycling back and going like, all right, girl, this is something that I can work on efficiently right now. Cause I know it's a tendency. Boom. I can work on that. Yeah. And I have the same tendency. I remember in college, I always, I thrived in the like dramatic scenes because I could get emotional and I could cry. And by my senior year, the same mentor, Dr. T, came in <laughs> and she was like, you're not allowed to cry in your piece. Mm. She was like, your, your emotion, like you use your emotions to get people on your, your side um, and that's not effective for the work that you're trying to do mm-hmm. right now. So you get one one scene where you can cry in your whole show. You better choose it wisely. Mm. And it helped me figure out how I could. Yeah, Dr. T, she's whew, the best. <laughs> um, but um, it gave me an opportunity as an artist to be like, oh, how am I taking up space here? What is the story that I'm trying to tell? What am I trying to communicate with the audience? And what do I need them to learn or understand in the process of, you know, the arc that is a show? Um, And then my Kayla as an individual, it started making me look, um, especially like in my relationship with my partner, uh, am I going to like cry when I like feel like I've done something wrong or I'm about to get Mm. in trouble with, um, with dude or am I going to use those emotions that I feel to like really internally look at myself and say, what's the root of the emotions that I'm feeling? Do I feel called out? Do I feel attacked? Um, Mm. If so, if yes, how can I break that down so that I can actually have a conversation with Mm. the person? Cause we can't like, we can't make moves if I'm just like, real bubble. Right. Yeah. You know, um, or if you're just and gonna so, focus yeah. on that the whole time, you know, about how bad I feel. It's not really productive. Right, like, right. oh, I'm so sorry I made you feel that way. Exactly. And this also could be because I grew up in a military household and emotions weren't efficient, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't really start crying like regularly until I got to college mm-hmm. <laughs> and started unpacking traumas. I ain't have no, un- no business unpacking in class. Um, but there's, there's something to both of those things, right? Your emotion can be used as a source of strength. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, really beautiful, beautiful to wear your heart on your sleeve and be like, I really care about this thing. But also, or both and, mm-hmm. how can I efficiently hold space um, so that I'm not stopping the, the move or the intention of what we're trying to do here? Right. Um, especially in conversations on racism when we have to, like, figure out where our privilege exists. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Because not everyone can receive all of that emotion and even be willing to like honor or grow. 
from Mm -hmm. it or be like, oh, I get why she's crying or like I get why she's like really sad or she feels bad or um, I understand that emotion. Not everyone has that capacity. So um, it's both the efficiency of understanding what's going to protect those who could be harmed by conversations like this or, or supposed to be centered in conversations like this. And also honoring the emotions by not invalidating them and saying they don't belong. Mm -hmm. Um, And just recognizing in the society where we exist, black people see a lot of white tears um, and they're just that white tears. You wipe them away, you put them in the cup, you bottle them up, you set them aside. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, yeah, that's what I was getting at with the that Karen's corner piece. <laughs> I think that really is though you brought up the relationship thing and that is like really something to remember too because I'm just thinking of it in that framework and if I'm telling my partner something that he did that hurt me and then it becomes about his feelings it's like well fuck me then right like this is yeah, now about fuck you me, am I right? and yeah. then that makes I mean it's so easy to frame it in my head in that way then when we're having conversations about race it's like oh so now it's about yeah. you again so mm-hmm. yeah um, and it's it's hard because I mean I think it's gonna it comes up in all our, of our relationships like this is how me and my mom engage with one another love that lady to death she's the best but me and my mom are so similar we just butt heads to the point where I don't think like I I hadn't spent more than a week with my mother in her home with my, my mom, my dad and my sister since I graduated college. Because I knew we get about 48 hours of <laughs> I missed you before all of a sudden we're in an argument. And the mm-hmm. argument always becomes about one of our feelings. Like, well, mom, like that really hurt my feelings. Like, because I feel like you didn't have to say that to me that way. And like, you know, you don't love me and and you just don't respect me Mm -hmm. and the individual I'm becoming. Mm -hmm. Or my mom's like, you just don't respect your elders Mm -hmm. and you don't care about me. You don't care about your mom. You just care about what what I can give to you. We can't do nothing in Mm -hmm. either of those 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 boats because we're just concerned with how we feel. Um, And so I, I think it comes in place with like relationship, be it family or romantic friendships. Um with children. Um, I think a lot of times I, I'm learning, um, cause I'm not, uh, I'm not a mother yet. Um, and I have like a niece and a nephew and a couple nephews that I've had to figure out how to engage with them where I honor their feelings and their experiences without centering myself sometimes, mm. Mm. um, because their needs are what I think often uh, when I'm engaging with them are the most important or valuable thing, right? Um, And if I just interact with them in a way that centers my feelings or how I feel or um, something like that all the time, that's what they learn how to do. They don't learn how Mm -hmm. to hold space for others. Um, And so that's, and I'm learning that just because my friend, my best friend who is a mom is teaching me that. Mm. Um, and it required me humbling myself and saying I was wrong a couple times mm. um, with how I interacted with her as an individual. And so I think that exists in multiple spaces, like in relationship with human beings. We have to figure out when are we centering ourselves? Why are we centering mm. ourselves? Um, and if we have the foresight to hold space for people better or more effectively going forward. Yeah. 
one thing I did want to touch on before we um, hopped off was I th- I know I had made a point in the email that like it was really cool to have a black social justice educator, especially a black queer social justice educator, right, right, right. Um, on the episode. Um, but in these spaces, because you know we're just trying to talk and have conversation, like you don't want it to feel like this kind of structured panel. Um, and even in just having a conversation on that first episode, I do think. Um, the, the amount of times I heard the black women on that episode be interrupted mm. um, by someone who identifies as black and male um, was a lot. And it was hard to listen to because I, as a black woman, have many a time been interrupted by other black male identifying human beings. Um, and it's a big conversation in the black community uh, with the role of those who identify as um, black male um, kind of stepping on or silencing the voices of black women when black women are all, cis and trans and non-binary are the ones who are leading the charge in a lot of these movements mm-hmm. um, and historically have always been considered the bottom of the you know, social hierarchy And um, that's why I think like community guidelines and like finding a way to protect those who are the most marginalized in a space, which gets so specific. It's like, oh, how do I know who's more marginalized than another person? Because we have a black queer social justice educator that has their own experiences, their own traumas, definitely isn't falling high on the the totem pole of privilege. Um, And then we also have black women. We have black women and we have biracial black women. Um, and it, you know, I'm also mixed and just not mixed presenting, but figuring out what the privilege of, you know, someone who's raised in a white space or a white household or by a white parent, the, um, or even the disadvantages in that and how it may differ from a person who just exists in the world as mm-hmm. a black person raised by black people and finding how to protect all of those spaces yeah. and conversations so that not none of them get stepped on yeah. or stepped over or glossed over or interrupted when they're trying to um, say their piece. And I think that's really important in building community too, mm-hmm. is like in order for us to be able to lean on one another, we have to trust one another. And it's hard to trust one another if we can't hold space for each other. Yeah. Like if I, if I don't think I can speak because I know this person's going to interrupt me. I don't know how to exist and engage in the space, you know? Yeah. And I feel like active protection can be super simple. As you're saying this, I'm thinking like it could be something as simple as like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. You were saying, you were just saying something a second ago, like that you had this thought, Mm -hmm. like, can you finish that thought? It doesn't even have to be some like super crazy call out session of being like, excuse me you keep interrupting everyone just like yeah setting up even just setting up we would have set up regulated times specific times for each well no versus yeah no i was even talking about like in real life in that conversation but also in real life conversation if you're in a group of people whether it be on the podcast zoom or in real life being like i'll just use you as an example but being like oh jess you were saying blah 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 like what what were you just saying Mm -hmm. like and just protecting that person's space and Mm -hmm. that voice if they might be being talked over or silenced or just don't even have a chance to get 
in the conversation, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, that gets into the fact that, like, not all of us like public speaking. Some of us are just introverts. Some of us are ambiverts. Some of us don't know how to... Um, assert yourself, yeah. It, thank you. Assert, uh, assert ourselves. And that's okay. We just have to figure out how to, like, make space for that. So I think that's exactly it. And then some other spaces on forums and stuff, they develop community guidelines to be like, all right, yeah. you know, when what we're in about. this conversation with one another... Um, we're going to take ego out. We're going to throw it out the room. Um, mm. We're going to take a, the spirit of offense that cannot exist here. And we're going to humble ourselves to be in this space together. But we also have to respect one another in this space mm. um, so that everyone can be honored in the, in the ways that they deserve. Everyone has the ability to speak their piece. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come into the room if we didn't have anything to say. Yep. Um, and that keeps us away from like commodifying all of the space for ourselves or allowing people to commodify all of the space for themselves or their, their point or their perspective. Um, and it can be as simple as either setting guidelines or being like, yo, you were just saying something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was really intrigued in it. I, uh, go ahead, finish that. I want, I want you to go back to that thought. Um, and that's like, that's big shit. Like that's like some really cool energy that does not often exist in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not traditionally how we engage with one another. We live in a country that loves talking over people. It's why the White House looks the way it looks right now. Or social media looks the way it looks too, you know? It's It's just a bunch of people shouting. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll I'll be, you know, engaging with someone and I'm literally not even waiting to listen to see what they're going to say back. I literally have my next argument teed (laughs) up, ready to go, and I'm just waiting, twiddling my thumbs to wait for them to reply. And then I'm like, boom, saying, got you. You know, they could have just apologized in the message before and it doesn't matter. I'm yeah. like, meanwhile, yes. I'm in my notes app. I'm in yeah. my notes app. My Copying and pasting. together. Bam. Like, okay. Oh, they sent their response. Let me just send that now. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think someone to like look towards and someone I've been learning a lot from is actually right. <clears throat> What's in my throat? I don't like it. Um, is Rachel Cargill. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, their page has been completely centered on, and they they founded the Loveland Foundation, Mm -hmm. um, but centered on highlighting conversations um, they're having with, I I think Rachel only highlights conversations she has with white women, but um, highlights the conversations she has with them and not to call them out because she protects their identities, but to show what it's like to try and engage with someone and actually respond to what they're saying mm-hmm. um, and not just immediately be like, oh, I'm here to prove my point and only my, por- my point. It's like, no, I'm going to have an actual conversation with you. I'm not about to argue with you. I'm going to try and incite an actual dialogue and then we'll post it on her Instagram feed and break down um, almost like annotations it's called the Darvo method, which I think came, the Darvo method was developed in like the seventies. Um, we'll break down via, uh, via the Darvo method, what, how in this conversation, if she, if Rachel's being gaslit, um, if someone's being invalidated, if the discourse is going nowhere, or if like they're not being heard or listened to, um, and it makes it so practical. Um, that I was like, oh, um, I can do this. And I had to do, I had to use the Darvo method with an email that I had received from um, 
the head of my old theater department when they were invalidating. I, I think in, when I was in college, um, a white woman at my showcase told me to make sure I took my do-rag off when all of the um, casting directors and fancy agents came into the room. My hair was wrapped up in like a headscarf because um, it was 40 degrees and my hair was wet and I was in New York for one of the first times in my life. Um, and so my hair was in a protective style. And she called my head wrap a do-rag in front of all my classmates, in front of my teachers, in front of my peers, in front of her assistants that I had known personally. Um, and I just had to like eat that, right? And when I brought up that situation to my university, they were asking me to do them a favor right when all of the anti-racism stuff had kind of broke out this summer. And I told them, oh, not only I can't like I'm not going to do this favor. This is why and this is why I do not want to engage with this individual or the company they own. And the response was, oh, well, I didn't know that happened, but I'll check in with other black students to see if they've ever had a racist experience. Um, but I'm sure they didn't. And so I had to break down that email and be like, this is why this doesn't like work <laughs> just for me to understand how I can engage with them going forward instead of like shouting off at the mouth or like popping off, how can I practically engage with you? So that I'm responding to exactly what you said and also explaining to you why that's not helpful in this conversation. And it's not sussing at the, the root issue. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, yeah, I think that happens a lot with holding space and we're all figuring it out as we go. Um, also on Rachel Cargill's page, I was just gonna say it's easier to digest because it's not happening to you. So you might do the same thing, yeah. but then you're seeing mm -hmm. it and you're like, oh yeah, with everything oh, broken down. Mental yeah, note, I yeah. won't do that myself, mm -hmm. you know? Exactly, yeah. And then it gives you the tool because then, you know, in conversations you have with friends or family or even just acquaintances or people that you disagree with, you can be like, okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Well, I know how to move here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know exactly what's being said. I know how and why it's being said. Um, even if like the intention, the intentions could be great or they can be bad. Um, but when we figure out how to break down these conversations, um, it just makes it easier for us to respond. I think, um, it's not, I don't like engaging with racism. I don't, but I have no choice because when I wake up, this is what goes outside. If it goes outside, um, and I live in a world that's really inherently racist and a lot of people don't believe that. So when I'm having these interactions with people, I have to explain not only why <laughs> racism exists, but what we can do or how we can move per individual to start breaking the shit down. I was going to say rectifying it, but there's nothing to there's nothing to fix because this is how the system was al always intended to like work. Mm -hmm. um, we have we live in a country that runs off a constitution that was written hundreds of years ago by white people who thought black people were related to like donkeys, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so how can we not think racism exists? And for people listening, figuring out like how to engage, I think it's, you know, finding your lane and finding your role. Resources, I, I thrive on information. And so it's not that I want to throw resource guys at people, but start making it a part of your daily routine. Mm -hmm. Just like every Tuesday, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to see what's going on with Tasia. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the morning, I'm going to draw myself a bath at 7 a.m. and be like, is the Chatty Broads episode out already? <laughs> Can I listen? Like, that's a part of my routine. The same as like 
any other podcast I listen to or I regularly scroll through social media, what is the information or the rhetoric that I'm taking in? Yeah, what am I um, prioritizing? Exactly. So, and we have really specific ways that we can start um, by deciding, oh, I'm going to follow Brittany Packnett Cunningham and Rachel Cargill or Victoria Alexander. All of a sudden, they're the people that are popping up yeah. in your feed. I'm going to be really specific about what and when I post. I I used to post on Instagram all the time. And unless I have like a real reason behind it or it's going to be useful to the, the cause or the movement that I'm a part of, I'm not posting. Mm. Um, or in what ways can you figure out how to amplify the needs of others mm-hmm. um, that are more disenfranchised than you? Uh, how can you prioritize your community over the... the needs of the individual, which, I mean, we live in a capitalist society and we all want to hoard and protect our own. Um, But that's not going to work if we want equity and justice for all. So I think that would be the encouragement I'll leave with people is start thinking about how you take up space and how you can like welcome more people in, specifically people that don't look like you. Because that's where we can start doing new shit instead of doing the same old, same old thing again. That's how you break down white supremacy, I think. I don't know. We figured it out. Wow, we solved it. Thank you so <laughs> much for this episode. It's over. This episode. We're done. <laughs> all done. Uh, my three-part hair. series, that's all that was necessary, right? Yeah. We'll never talk about it again, <laughs> probably, on the podcast. From now on, check that box. Never again. I'm sure people will not necessarily agree with everything I had to say, and I think that's important because I could learn from an audience member who's like, actually, I don't agree with that, and that's why. So, yes. I thought you gave so much good food yeah. for thought, though, and it was just so appreciated. Mm-hmm. Michaela, like, so, like so unbelievably appreciated, not only for you to come on the podcast and just break this all down for us, but also just the initial email and yeah, everything. Out in the first place. I mean, so so beyond grateful. And please tell the broads where they can find you. Oh, because yes. first of all, everyone's going to want to keep updated on you know what's going on currently in your life. I also will say that um, Michaela's recent Instagram stories when I started following her have me in stitches during the commentary of certain reality TV shows. It is pure gold. (laughs) And all of the resources that you provide. It's fantastic. (laughs) Thanks, man. Instagram is a weird place. So I'm just... First of all, when I saw, like, the bad mom follow me, I was like, oh, we a bad bitch now. (laughs) We're in here. Um, and um, so, yeah, on Instagram, my page traditionally had always been private, but that's not useful to the movement. So she is a public mm-hmm. girl now. Mm. It is at Carpe A celebrity. Go. No, we're not. <laughs> um, uh, we've got 2,000 followers, and I'm pretty sure 7,000 of those people are robots. <laughs> um, but, um, but at Carpe Diem at C-A-R-P-E-I-N-G-D-I-E-M came up with it in high school never gonna change it I love it and I think that's really the only place I exist on social I mean my com. I worked really hard on my website I'm yes. proud of it she's cute we'll put um, that on the episode notes obviously thanks um, it's <laughs> entirely like the the purpose of it has been entirely redirected to put attention on uh, Breonna Taylor and then Mm -hmm. a couple of social justice organizations that I really believe in. Um, 
And other than that, I mean, hopefully people can find resources on my page, like new people to follow and um, new guides that they can start working with. And then sometimes like on my stories, I really just like to talk shit and be silly. So maybe I'm funny. I don't know. Very funny. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Broads. It'll all be in the episode notes per usual. Um, We so appreciate you. And uh, we're just going to keep this conversation going. Chat soon. Chat soon.